fundamentally, it is an act of unlearning and unlearning a lot of uh, old behaviors, old beliefs about how to show up and work in a conventional hierarchy. Um, and the only way you unlearn um, is through practice and be reinforced with positive experiences uh, that um, substantiate or reinforce the learning. So this is not a cognitive intervention. This is not a read the book and oh, I know the practice. This is not even, I've read the book, I've attended all the courses, and I have a, a deep understanding of the rules, but I've never practiced. This is a game of practice that you get better at only through the doing, not through the thinking about. Even the most seasoned managers have not played this game before. Even the most seasoned executives have not played this game before. And everybody is learning a new game to play. So in that, everybody starts at zero. That's Tom Thomason, and this is The Emerging Future. Future Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Joel DeYoung, and I get to talk to the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. That is the mission, mantra, vision behind this podcast, because there is an emerging way of moving forward in the world in this transition time, and some people have a sense of where we need to go, and they're leading the way. And Tom Thomason, my guest today on The Emerging Future, is chock full of curiosity, compassion, and courage. He is pioneering a new way of working. Ever feel a little bit disenchanted with the work that you're doing? Yeah. Ever feel like and there's something just not right about the management hierarchy that is so pervasive in our work environments. Yep. Well, Tom has got a pulse on this. Tom's been doing this work for quite a long time. And he's completely reimagining the structures that are involved in organizing work. And he does it in and around purpose. So one of the things that really jumped out at me in this conversation was his use of the word contemplative because he's using this, uh, this way of working called holacracy, and he'll go into that in the podcast, the holarchy instead of a hierarchy. It's a holarchy. And when we got into some of the details about what that actually means, he said, really the practice of holacracy is a contemplative practice. I mean, can you imagine if work was a contemplative practice? If work was the way to become more of yourself? To learn, to share, to collaborate, and to ultimately become more human? 
Yes. Well, this is what Tom's doing. This is what this is the work that Tom's all about. So for over a decade, he's been on this quest. Well, and I think it it goes beyond that because there's definitely this arc in the trajectory of of Tom's path, and and it starts off on a spiritual quest, and then it it sort of lands um, back into this entrepreneurial, spiritual, contemplative way of working that he talks about. Um, so I'm completely fascinated by it. And this conversation just um, was really eye-opening and, and enlightening for me and and, and really um, kind of got me jazzed up that, whoa, whoa, he, this isn't just like um, an idea that you can, you can do like, Oh, well, there's got to be a better way. Yes, well, there is a better way. And, and Tom outlines these actual practical structures and ways of doing work that, um, that he's promoting. And like I said, it's all revolving around purpose. So he goes into how hierarchy, you know, has reached its limits and, and now he's replacing it with this new way. And, and uh, Tom's been an entrepreneur for a while, and he's built a, a number of different businesses. And this work is work in kind of the self-organization uh, space. And so he's a rec- recognized leader in that space with different practices and, and methods. And then he's been implementing the practice of Holacracy since 2007 when he co-founded Holacracy One, which is really to develop and mature the practice of Holacracy. So now he is currently a founding member and partner at ENCODE, and, and those are actually key terms to hone in on. So just make a mental note, founding member and partner, those are, it's different than founder and CEO because this uh, new way of working there, there are no employees. So part of this uh, endeavor is is completely liberating the um, employment structure and breaking down the divide between employer and employee so everyone's a partner in the business and this new endeavor is called encode.org that's e-n-c-o-d dot o-r-g and it's the organization that is focused on the creation of the necessary legal the financial and the social structures further support this self-organization and this new world of work. So this is Tom Thomason going beyond employment and liberating purposeful work. And one more note before we start this. We we recorded this in a, a small conference room in the Impact Hub in Seattle when he was um, doing some, some workshops in town. And I noticed that um, after the after the recording when I was listening you know back to it that there's quite a bit of reverb in in this small little conference room so it sounded like perfectly still and like this was going to be the best audio recording ever and then there was there's quite a bit of just room reverb in it and I've been tweaking it and trying to figure it out and um, ultimately you know the more I, I went back and listened to it I'm just making it worse so um what I did notice is that when I listened to it, I, I noticed it in the beginning, and then over time it sort of fades into the background, and I don't really notice the audio. So forgive me. I'm still working on my audio editing skills, and I hope that doesn't get 
in the way of how deep and meaningful this person's work is. So with that, here's Tom Thomason. Born and raised in Indiana, small town, Midwestern town, uh, farm town, automotive town. Um, so went to school there and uh, pretty ordinary, just American upbringing, wife, football player, um, athlete, scholarship offers, going to school and all that kind of good stuff. So, For football? For football, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Did you take it up? Did you go? No, I seriously considered it. So as an all-state football player okay. uh, in Indiana, um, it's not the same thing as being an all-state football player in Texas, which is where I <laughs> now live. <laughs> That's a big difference. <laughs> being an all-state basketball player in Indiana. Right, would be the Hoosiers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, no, I was very active in athletics and sports um, and learned a lot about myself and mm -hmm. competition and pushing boundaries and all those kind of things and leadership uh, as well. So I enjoyed it. I was um, uh, four years varsity and all that kind of stuff and fairly good at it and had scholarship offers. But I decided to get an education as opposed to being a practicing dummy <laughs> for other athletes. What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <clears throat> So yeah, um, grew up in a small town and uh, started my first business um, in my late teens and early 20s, actually. So in high school or after high school? Well, I got paid for my very first uh, software application in my senior year of high school. So I've always been kind of a, a self-learner, mm -hmm. uh, curious about everything. Um, and so I taught myself how to program and deal with the emerging uh, computing environments that were kind of just coming on the stage in the late 70s and wow. early 80s. What were those? Um, at the time, they were all the microcomputer generation. So it was literally the Apple 1 and 2, hmm. you know, and literally the IBM PC, the first. And so I grew up with that. So that was a huge inspiration for me. And uh, my business initiatives, um, just kind of following that curiosity. How does this work? How does it change the way we work and communicate and all that? So that started super simple. Um, as a senior in high school, I created a software pro program for my science teacher who uh, put in a, um, a bid to get a computer lab funded by one of the state programs. So it was one of the first computer labs in our small little town in Indiana. And I was in heaven. So I was learning how to make all of it work. And I was like the, the go-to expert that was also the athlete. So there was like this really weird... Man, you had it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I designed a software program. I think it was for ordering school supplies. Okay. And got paid for it by my high school science teacher. That's amazing. And that was my senior year in, in high school. And then did you end up getting the lab or...? Um, I, I just camped out. So um, some people go to chess club. Yeah. I go to computer club. I just uh -huh. made it. So there was not such a thing back in the day. So my breaks, my lunchtime, my yeah. off time was just spending time there and just drinking it in. That's amazing. And like, that's so, that's like on the early side of like the technology. <clears throat> so yeah, I feel I mean, like it's it poignant in what you're creating now. You know, you were... You were at the front end of all of this. Yeah, you and I just came off of a, a seminar workshop uh, series, and <clears throat> I was talking about my trajectory has been primarily around disruptive things, mm -hmm. innovation and how it disrupts. 
So just really curious about new ways to do old things. Mm -hmm. So my high school and my science teacher had been ordering school supplies for a very long time, but they hadn't done it with a computer before. Right. <laughs> right. So it was just new ways to do old things mm -hmm. and to disrupt our thinking about um, existing models or systems or what have you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was an early theme of mine for sure. And speaking of systems, so then you moved into, you went to college. So that, I did. that's a system in and of itself. How did that yeah. happen? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, like I said, I made a choice. I had scholarship offers to be mm -hmm. an athlete at several schools um, and decided to not do that. And I ended up <clears throat> excuse me, going to Purdue University to study electrical engineering. So a prestigious school with a really um, good uh, engineering program. Mm -hmm. And I did that uh, for all of one year. Um, and then what had my attention was not the sciences and all of those kind of things, but the um, bigger, broader um, issues of life. Uh, who are we? Why are we here? The, the big meaning questions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, what better way to pursue those kind of big questions than pursue uh, a vocation as a Roman Catholic priest uh, to study the bigger questions, of the course. philosophical <laughs> questions, the theological questions of who are we as humans and why do we do what we do and mm -hmm. what does this all mean anyway. So my second year of university was not at Purdue, but was at a um, uh, school of theology. <clears throat> it was uh, St. Mindred Arch Abbey in southern Indiana, okay. where I studied with Benedictine monks. And so... That was uh, a love affair with intentional community that mm -hmm. actually didn't lead me for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. So I experienced there some wonderful um, people, uh, amazing people doing amazing work, uh, intentionally so. Uh, I would maybe label that now with a different label or a different term, uh, but they were there for a purpose, to bring something into the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, they worked together, they taught together, they ate together, they cooked together, they prayed together. It was, you know, every, every bit an intentional community. Mm -hmm. And the power of that, the power of intention, the power of community, and the power of collective works really just never left me. And how long were you there? So that was a year at the university. Um, I also launched my first business there. So, really? Yes. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> at the monastery, I uh, was working part-time in the summers with a family um, business, and I brought a computer with me to the uh, Arch Abbey in the monastery mm -hmm. and started doing software development while studying. Um, and so I was actually running a business with permission mm -hmm. uh, from the dorms um, at the uh, School of Theology. That's wild. Yeah, so it's always been kind of a blend yeah. of um, both interiors and exteriors. Uh, mm -hmm. What motivates us, um, what inspires us, and then how do we express that in the work or the activities that we do. Were there practices that you learned at the monastery that you still use? Uh, in different versions, different forms. Yeah. So um, actually, I, what I fell in love with, as I said, was the intentional community nature. Mm -hmm. So I kind of shifted my focus from thinking that I was going to be a diocesan priest mm -hmm. to becoming a Benedictine monk. Mm -hmm. Actually, I wanted a piece of that. I wanted, I wanted that experience. 
And so for a variety of reasons, I decided that that was not right for me at that age, mm -hmm. that there was a whole lot of life that I hadn't explored yet. Yeah. So I decided to um, go explore a little bit more. But that notion of being in community actually never left. Hmm. So I toyed with the idea of being a Benedictine monk for quite some time. Okay. Um, and that was kind of, uh, it wasn't really out of my system, if you will, mm -hmm. until my mid to late 20s. But during that time, to answer your question, um, I was really steeped in meditative practices. Okay. So meditation and prayer, reflection, contemplation, mm -hmm. these are really uh, important tools to center oneself and to deeply reflect on individual purpose. Um, and I've explored many different techniques mm -hmm. and methods over the years and have shifted my whole belief system mm -hmm. over the years, for sure, as we grow and mature yeah. and, uh, and change. Um, but those foundational roots of contemplation, meditation, and reflection um, has, have stayed with me. Now it's all about... Uh, mindfulness, mindfulness practice, mm -hmm. and meditation practices, but I've been doing that since my early twenties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it, and that's something that's actually coming into the mainstream in a huge way right now. Yeah, I mean, I think mindfulness was on the cover of Time magazine recently. No doubt. Um, so that reemerged for me from a, um, a spiritual practice mm -hmm. to a mainstream practice. I think. In the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, um, with his uh, book on mindfulness-based training programs, mm -hmm. uh, medical programs to have health and wellness and to bring those into the corporate environment, yeah. those were becoming more mainstream. So um, mindfulness uh, practices and meditation practices were coming out of the spiritual um, genres and into the corporate uh, mainstream genres. Mm -hmm. um, which was pretty cool. Yeah, and you, you see that. I mean, even with like companies like Google having, you know, like a yoga studio or a meditation room or, you know, those things are acceptable. Like even a decade ago, you wouldn't see those things. In Not at all. Um, I, I have the privilege of being on the inside of many organizations over the years. Right. And recently, uh, there's a whole focus on bringing mindfulness practices to work. Uh, in fact, um, you know, pushing the, the story ahead a little bit, uh, holacracy as an organizational practice mm -hmm. is very much a contemplative practice. Mm. It's a practice of present moment awareness, what's needed now and next. But I get a little ahead of myself. Um, the backstory is I have woven together over many, many years a sense of spirit and um, uh, bigger questions of who we are and why we do what we do with the uh, ordinary work of day-to-day -day life. So, so what, what was kind of the through line that led you to holacracy? Like, well, first of all, like, is that a 20-year period where you started a couple of different organizations before you started doing holacracy one? Yeah, so um, very much um, an entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. those early years, high school and college, just kind of dabbling, trying new things. Right. I launched my first real business uh, in the mid-80s with two other business partners, and we kind of continued my theme of technology, where we now deploy technology systems for clients, develop software systems, okay. and uh, did that for real. Although we were young and early in our careers and didn't know a damn thing anyway, uh, <laughs> but that didn't stop us. So we did that for about two and a half years, learned a lot. Uh -huh. 
Um, and then my business partners, they got married, started having families, and we started to need real paychecks. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, we decided to do other things. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I started um, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I've had six different entrepreneurial initiatives over the last 30 years. Um, and in between, I've tried every kind and variety of corporate structure. Uh, okay. For-profit, not-for-profit, uh, Fortune organizations, Fortune 5 companies. Um, I've been uh, deep in the management consulting field um, mm. in professional services, working with all the, the usual players from McKinsey to Price to okay. Accenture. Um, had public company audit experience with uh, businesses, took a company public um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I've had successes and failures of all kinds over 30 years, mm -hmm. and I've started now six different companies, including Holacracy One was the fifth, which was launched in 2007, and then my current activities with Encode.org uh, as a founding member we launched in 2015. How did, um, how did Holacracy One come into play for you? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a, a great story. Um, so where to, to, to start the story for me, I had just sold a company. It was 2005-ish. Okay. And I was kind of at the top of my management consulting change management game. Okay. I tried all the varieties of mm. things. Uh, business process improvement, total quality management, uh, change management, teams, self-directed teams, on and on it goes. And quite frankly, uh, realizing that we were getting the same results led to a lot of frustration and outright cynicism that, yeah. you know, we aren't fixing this problem. Hmm. Uh, we're throwing solutions at it, but those solutions, as good as they are, lean techniques, right. agile techniques, right. teaming, um, they wither away and die when they get attached to or bolted onto existing structures. That the power system somehow finds a way to erode all that goodness. And over about 18 months, and I don't know what it is about 18 months, but in my experience, after 18 months of a really cool thing, getting a whole lot of attention and a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of money, it atrophies, hmm. it withers away and dies. And we're left with pretty much the same structure that we started with, plus a whole lot of cynicism. So I was kind of holding that experience and uh, asking that classic entrepreneurial mantra, there must be a better way. Right. <laughs> what can we possibly do uh, to shift this? And so I went back to my spiritual roots. I started to look at um, who are the current thinkers paying attention to how whole humans show up mm -hmm. and integrate their whole selves uh, and bring all of their talents, their interior sense of capacities and their exterior skills and capacities and I ran across uh, lots of thinkers in this space. Um, and I was hoping that that might inform me on different approaches to bring a more holistic approach to business. Um, one that was more integral, that took into account um, different perspectives from interiors and exteriors. Mm -hmm. It was at that conference, uh, one of those conferences I was exploring that, that I ran across my uh, now business partner, Brian Robertson, who is experimenting with these questions and holding the same frustration mm -hmm. and looking for that better way in his software company that he started in the early 2000s. So we crossed paths in um, actually early 2006 um, okay. at a New York workshop 
both exploring this field of study of integrating perspectives, bringing a more whole approach, uh, a more inclusive approach to how we show up and do work. Mm -hmm. And so we met each other. We were both entrepreneurs, business guys, uh, looking for how to apply tools, not just to learn about new things for new things' sake, mm -hmm. but what can we do with them? How can we improve our work experience? How can we improve um, our interactions with our fellow human beings, our mm -hmm. fellow workers? And so we crossed paths, and he was sharing with me his experiments that he was running at the software company. And we struck up a, a friendship, um, and he invited me out. Uh, long story short, um, after about a year of kind of um, getting to know one another, we decided to take the experiment that was inside the software company, carve it out, and mm -hmm. seed it into a new organization. And that new organization was for the express purposes of um, promoting and extending and maturing this practice now called Holacracy. Okay. So Holacracy One was the name of that company, and it was launched in March of 2007 with that very purpose. The initial purpose of Holacracy One was to promote and extend the practice of Holacracy. And that's all we knew at the time. <laughs> like, nothing grand. It wasn't change the world kind of thing. Uh -huh. It was like, does anybody care about this? Can we possibly communicate it in any way that people understand it? And can we sustain a business by promoting and extending this thing? Ten years later, the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you certainly don't know that up front. So who is your first customer? Oh, well, um, it depends. We had uh, lots of different types of customers. Actually, the very first customer, uh, the very first explorer, was the same institution that was doing the research on integrating perspectives and bringing a more integral approach to work, business, life, and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And so they tried it uh, with themselves, on themselves. Um, kind of concurrent with that, we had um, we were offering workshops and okay. seminars and training programs to mm -hmm. expose people to this. So we kind of started very modestly mm -hmm. um, with just a few folks that were interested in this. I like that you and call them explorers. Yeah, <laughs> I think all those early companies were exploring, really, uh, probably um, reacting to their own frustration and their own sense of cynicism yeah. about trying different things and not mm -hmm. getting the results that they want. So mm -hmm. that's the kind of folks that were early explorers with Holacracy. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think that trend continues to today. But now it's a, a more of a mainstream kind of thing, if you can call it that. At least there are, there are many more people that have experimented and have case studies and stories to tell and share. So can you explain what Holacracy is? Yeah, that, that question will tie up even the uh, tongue-tie the most experienced Holacracy <laughs> practitioner. Um, it gets answered in so many ways. Um, I start with uh, one answer to that question that I've landed on. Um, it is a complete wholesale replacement for the management hierarchy, mm -hmm. full stop. It is a ton of other things, but at its core, what it is doing is replacing the power distribution system that we've all grown accustomed to and implicitly think that that's the one to use. That's the management hierarchy. And so Holacracy offers a replacement, an option, to completely swap out that power distribution system with a new power distribution system. So it's hard to make that claim in year one 
because mm-hmm. you're still trying to make those distinctions. It's only after the clarity of many years of doing this mm-hmm. that you can make that claim. Uh, for the longest time, it got kind of bundled in with uh, all the other change systems that were out there, okay. improvement systems. So it was on and, the menu. Yeah. yeah, so a better way for meetings. Uh, okay, a better <laughs> way for decision-making processes. Okay. Uh, clarity around business metrics and measurements. Yeah, got that too. Oh, it's a role-based system. Uh, better accountabilities and um, clear uh, authority or clear uh, delineation of where the work lives. Yes, that too. Mm-hmm. But it misses the point. Fundamentally, it is a different way of getting work done. Not necessarily a better way. So uh, in, in the beginning, lots of folks would think about holacracy as a solution to a mm-hmm. problem. It's actually less a solution is that it just changes the game completely. Hmm. It's a replacement for what came before. Not a better way to do what came before. Mm-hmm. It's a replacement for what came before. So why replace it? Because what's in place now is at its limits. So it's actually that power system, that power hierarchy, that is causing some of the symptoms that we treat with these bolt-on processes. So it's the reason that people feel disempowered or disengaged. It's the reason that you get bureaucratic bloat in organizations. It's the reason people feel like they're carrying the weight of the world Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of decision-making authority within organizations. Mm -hmm. So it's this power hierarchy that has reached its limits in a world that is uh, distributed, complex, decentralized, and everybody wants to participate in uh, a real and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And, and now with um, globalization, you have an opportunity to actually live into the decentralization in a completely new way. Because your company, right, Encode, has, they're not employees, but yeah. they're partners, right? Legal partners in the actual partnerships. Structure. And they're all, they're all over the globe. All over the world, yep. So, and this is... Um, this is a, a marker of the continuing trend mm-hmm. of decentralizing authority, allowing everybody to participate, um, participate for purpose. Hmm. So uh, one of the other useful ways of describing holacracy is, is purpose-driven. Everything hangs on purpose. Mm-hmm. So what it does, it, it not only encourages, but gives people the ability to lead autonomously, uh, autonomously um, to pursue purpose, mm-hmm. to the, pursue the expression of purpose. So everything hangs on purpose. And so what we're doing at ENCODE is just pushing those boundaries mm-hmm. um, and looking at the legal and people structures as well. So this is Fast Company, the most recent one. Mark Zuckerberg's yep. on, on the cover, right? And it's all about putting your values to work, lessons on profit, purpose, and, and good business. Yeah, purpose is the the new uh, motivator. Um, It used to be, and it still is for sure, no doubt, uh, the inspirational leader, Mm -hmm. um, the inspired uh, boss, uh, the visionary. Um, And we still have them. They are um, the new heroes, the new gods, if you will. Hmm. Um, And the heroic leadership model, I think, is suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And... We need a replacement for that. Um, Purpose is that replacement. Um, Something that inspires everyone, including those leaders too, to see brought into the world, uh, see manifest in the world. 
Mm-hmm. So purpose-driven um, entities, purpose-driven business, uh, conscious business, sometimes it gets called, is certainly a replacement for the, the traditional leader. Yeah, and I feel like purpose gets thrown around a lot. Like, we're going to find our purpose, and then we're all going to gather around it, and then we're going to go to work, and we're going to do that. And, and yeah. it's inserted in so many conversations. I feel like it's everywhere now, and and therefore it's kind of a lost um, yeah, but some sort of meaning. So can you, can you tie that back to how it's meaningful for what you're doing? Of course. And it, it's kind of how you characterize it because it's common. Um, we're going to find our purpose. Yes. Now we're in trouble right from the start. What's our purpose? Mm-hmm. It's the collective integration of purpose that fails. Hmm. So that's what we're not trying to do. We're not trying to find a collective or common purpose. We're actually trying to discover what the organization's purpose is. What is its gift to the world? Mm-hmm. What would be missing if that organization didn't provide it to the world? It's not a collective or consensus or lowest common denominator or mm-hmm. sense of what our collective purposes are in the world. It's serving something greater than ourselves. So it's the fundamental why of that organization. Why does it exist? Mm-hmm. What is its gift or offering to the world? That's what we're in service of. Not even our collective experiences or purposes. Um, that's not what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. So Holacracy is the for-purpose organization. Yeah, absolutely. Everything hangs on purpose. Okay. So all decisions are based on how well we're pursuing that purpose. Mm-hmm. Are we making good decisions that move us ever closer towards that purpose? and not making decisions that would diminish our capacities to express purpose. Okay. So the whole rule set is tuned into how well does this organizational structure express purpose into the world, mm-hmm. its purpose. And the decision-making processes and the synchronization processes uh, are all geared towards purpose, not personal preference, not personal desires, and certainly not personal purposes. There's a lot that could go awry in when when you talk about the depth of like personalities and subpersonalities and how those come into play into making decisions and creating the culture indeed so (laughs) how does that play into that i mean are you for this for this to actually work are you requiring people to show up to work in a different way as well their approach, their relationship to work Mm -hmm. and um, their relationship to their own sense of power their own sense of autonomy, their own sense of authority, Mm -hmm. their own sense of ability to influence and control Mm -hmm. shifts dramatically. Holacracy, when practiced, is an invitation. It's an invitation to show up and sense what you can in service of something greater than yourself. And when you feel like you've got that sense, you have a path to process what you sense and allow the organization to do something with it. That's beautiful. I mean, it almost sounds like it's uh, a way to be human in in the world. It's a double-edged sword, though, because we have grown accustomed to being kind of pulling back to the shadows, demurring, feeling fearful of being trumped or outvoted or in in some way embarrassed even. Um, So we don't want to risk using our voice. This is what I mean, that it invites you into a new relationship with yourself, your work, and your own authority, your own power, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, this is the transformative aspect yeah. that Holacracy is. 
it invites you to sense into deeply what you can see that would be beneficial for the organization to do to express its purpose. Mm -hmm. And there you have no bars, no barriers to that, to voicing that sense. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge, huge shift. Oh, it's a huge shift. I mean, especially when people's fears have actually been realized and enforced. Yeah, back to the cynicism. And over of and course. over again. And now you're saying, no, it, it, forget all that. You know, you can show up as yourself and you can risk here at safe. Yeah, so it's um, one of the, the crown jewels, if you will, of Holacracy's uh, constitution is the decision-making process. Hmm. And it's known as the integrative decision-making process. And it's the heart of the governance practice. Okay. And governance is just sorting out what's the work, where does it live, with what authorities, mm -hmm. right? So this is like the crown jewel of finding an alternate way for humans to come together and make decisions that tease out personal preferences and biases mm -hmm. and allows space for everyone to show up and sense into signals. Um, uh, capacities that they have naturally mm -hmm. and allows them to surface it on behalf of the organization. Mm -hmm. So it gives an alternative to consensus uh, or consent. Uh, it's a different way of coming to a decision. Um, so it's described as integrated decision making. It integrates perspectives mm -hmm. of those that are, care about the purpose and is designed to find workable ways forward fast workable ways that cause little or no harm, don't move us in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. but move us incrementally in the right direction towards mm -hmm. purpose. Mm -hmm. And so integrative decision-making is the key to that process, and it's one of the, the gems, I think, that, that is holacracy. Can you give an example of what that looks like? like? Like when you come together as a group and you're making a decision, I'm assuming you're on Zoom technology because everyone's all over and so you're behind the screens and you, you've got something to work out yeah it can be through any medium in fact there are ways of doing this now even asynchronously through slack and other uh, channels so you have a high degree of fidelity from in-person meetings um, zoom virtual meetings of mm -hmm. course or skype or whatever uh, all the way to as asynchronous processing using the same principles um, but basically, it is um, the people that care about a particular aspect of the organization's work. Okay. You might call it a functional area. Mm -hmm. um, they get together from time to time and integrate their learning. They integrate the perspectives that they bring from actually doing the organization's work. Mm -hmm. And everybody has um, equal voice in that regard. So everyone who is participating in that work can sense into how could we do that different mm -hmm. or better or improve it in some way. Or are we, do we have structures that are no longer necessary, mm -hmm. no longer useful, uh, that they were just something that we thought might be needed, but in reality, weren't actually needed. Mm -hmm. So everybody's invited to that process from time to time. And anybody that senses that the structure could be improved can propose that improvement. Okay. And so anybody can, can propose a change to the way the work is structured or where the authorities lie to do that work. Okay. And so it starts there with, I sense that things could be better because through doing the work, I think we could do it this way mm -hmm. and we would have incremental improvements. So that person proposes a change. And then the decision-making process teases that apart a bit okay. and allows people to get super clear on what's being proposed mm -hmm. 
from what perspective? What's the data? What experience are you bringing? Um, you get to hear people's reactions to that. How does it land with other people, other roles, and how mm -hmm. that might affect their work and see if there's anything that you missed or didn't see. So you get the ability to get super clear on what it is that we're discussing, get other perspectives at play through lots of reaction, mm -hmm. and then finally um, um, integrate anything that you heard into your final proposal. And then anybody in that functional group has the authority to object to it if they find that in some way diminishes capacities that we already had okay. or hurts something that we hold um, of value. So if those things come up, then we have another step of the process that integrates those objections keep going. to find that workable way forward. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is at first that can be kind of a, a slow process mm -hmm. as people learn that gameplay, mm -hmm. but over time it goes super fast and the efficiencies are amazing what you can do. In fact, every, little, every one of those is like a little mini reorg. You're in a micro way, restructuring, rewarranting, reorganizing organizing the, the work of the organization. Instead of going through a change management process and then 18 months later yeah, going, hey, we've got to do this again. Yeah, exactly. And I, in my experience as a management consultant uh, long ago is some organizations were actually addicted to uh, the whole reorg thing. Mm -hmm. So they would ignore problems, ignore problems, sweep them under the rug until it was time to do a reorg. Reorg. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody starts wringing their hands and the drama ensues about all the things that typically typically accompany that. And now there seems like there's a growing awareness that that's not working well because it's a repeat and it's a repeat and it's a repeat. Yeah, yeah, getting the same results right. with the same results for sure. And so definitely want to move away from two things, um, the repeats and the big decisions up front those long cycles. Mm -hmm. So we've learned through really good practices like lean yep. and agile and iterative prototyping and many other design build practices and architecture that it's better to make small decisions fast, mm -hmm. test it in reality, see what reality has to say, and yep. then innovate, repeat. So this is kind of uh, the process of the decision-making uh, tools. It's somewhat like in. the U process. The theory you the theory you yeah, sure. yeah mm -hmm. where you sense into you sense into mm -hmm. it and then you go into that deep place of reflection and then you iterate and and change and if it really works then you can scale it or systematize it yeah but you keep going you keep going back through that yeah so um, definitely like that um, the the other aspect um, that I would point out is it stays really grounded on what is. This is back to that meditative kind of stance. Mm. What's needed now? Uh, paying really close attention to no more, no less than what's needed now. Mm -hmm. We humans really get caught up in the future and future think. And that translates to organizational bloat mm. oftentimes. And so we're designing for things that could be, might be sometime in the future, maybe necessary, but oftentimes that turns out not to be true. Hmm. So what this practice is doing is holding us honest yeah. to what we can actually see and what's actually needed now to keep the organization on track, mm -hmm. not to serve our personal preferences or pet projects. Mm -hmm. Difficult to do. Very, part of the, the transformative and um, transformational practice. Because mm -hmm. we all want to assert our own perspective and be right yeah it feels good to be right yeah and the, the process <laughs> is really really cool 
and it helps us see our own attachment to them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't scold or project. It just kind of holds up a mirror. So at some point it becomes self-evident. It's like, oh, this is really about me. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, I need to let this go. This is about yeah. me, not about the organization mm-hmm. getting its needs met. And then it reminds me that, hey, I really do care about this organization's purpose. Mm-hmm. And I want to see that into the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that notion of serving something greater than self. Mm-hmm. It really seems like in integrate like you you are integrating like your history and the spiritual practice into the work of the business realm. Yeah, in which they see there's often a huge divide. Like, you know, there there is the spiritual realm and practices, and, and then there's the business practices that they, they don't compartmentalization. Yeah, yes. fragmenting our yeah. thoughts. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but of course, Fred. Lou writes extensively about this in right. Reinventing Organization. And as organizations and organizational systems mm-hmm. develop and mature, they recognize that that compartmentalization is getting in the way mm-hmm. and leading to um, dysfunction um, and actually unhealthy um, uh, circumstances for, for humans. Right. Yeah, that's a great, a great book to figure out the development in the way that humans organized and kind of where we're at and what's emerging right now because we're moving right from the what he identifies as the orange paradigm right which is a rational isn't isn't that the dominant paradigm right now yes so that would be what are the characteristics of the orange paradigm do you remember outcomes measurements metrics profit uh, growth scale it's the classic rational approach Mm Um, to growing and scaling a business Mm -hmm. where the next would be uh, more um, um, sensitive to values and Mm -hmm. um, impact and social good Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of that that next stage of development and we're in the transition period so we're sensing a little bit of what's what's what is working and yeah and those value memes are playing themselves out in big ways <laughs> in society for sure uh-huh. and then as fred points out and others as well there are uh, developmental memes beyond those two as well mm-hmm. and that's what he's pointing to uh, with his coloring color system you mentioned developmental theory in the workshop earlier how does that relate to this i mean it's similar to what fred's talking about but are you thinking of other frameworks? Were you thinking of other frameworks when you were thinking about developmental theory? Like spiral dynamics, for example. Yeah. Would be another one. Yeah. So um, what we want is um, an organizational process that will honor wherever folks find themselves mm-hmm. on their developmental journey. Yeah, that's right. And not try to make them one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of my personal pet peeves against... Um, professional development or personal development Um, that is personal and professional development is awesome wonderful great needed necessary in all kinds of varieties Mm -hmm. but to do it in a coercive way to try to optimize someone for greater efficiency Mm -hmm. in an organizational environment feels like a travesty so what we want is a developmentally aware system that allows people to be where they are Mm -hmm. sense what they can sense and participate in a way that is healthy for them um, so that, I think that's one of the other things that um, this decision-making practice and the whole practice of Holacracy at, um, brings to the table is a developmental awareness um, that there are different perspectives at play, hence the 
cornerstone of our governance process of integrative decision making. Mm -hmm. It's about integrating perspectives. We all bring a variety of perspectives to play. Those perspectives are uh, colored or influenced by our own developmental journey, mm -hmm. our own value system that we're currently holding. Mm -hmm. And those, as we all know, change over time, change as we mature, mm -hmm. changes our life conditions uh, mm -hmm. change. So holacracy is about taking those wherever they are as a perspective, one perspective, and then finding a way to integrate those perspectives in service of a broader objective, the mm -hmm. purpose. So there is a developmental uh, lens, if you will, that's used um, when you look at holacracy as a system or a practice. And I think that in the in uh, Lulu's book, the the metaphor that we're moving away from is the machine metaphor. So, like you mentioned, the efficiency within uh, a person. So you're developing them, and they're doing the uh, personal development, so that they can become more productive and more efficient in their role. And what we're moving into is more of a living organism metaphor. And that's when I saw the holacracy logo up <clears throat> the the circles mm -hmm. and the nestedness of the circles, that seems like it's almost a representation of uh, a natural living organism or a living system. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, so um, one of the, the, the characteristics that mark this new way of showing up in the world is uh, the replacement for that hierarchy, that power mm -hmm. hierarchy. And the replacement is a natural organic holarchy. It's uh, where holacracy begins to get its name, right? Mm -hmm. So it recognizes there's a better, a more requisite, natural way of structuring something. The way the human body is structured, uh, a developmental approach to structure, and that is what a holarchy is. It's a natural hierarchy of ever-increasing wholeness towards something that you care about, a purpose. And so um, holacracy has a, um, an eye towards all of those developmental issues. And you've been helping companies move into holarchy or holacracy mm -hmm. for about a decade. Yep, for uh, over 10 years. Uh, I've led many of the ones that uh, folks that track this kind of stuff read about mm -hmm. uh, and seeing how real uh, entrepreneurs, real executives, and just real ordinary people respond can, to this. Can you give some examples of some companies that you've worked with? Yeah, the, the ones that are um, uh, oftentimes highlighted. Um, so um, we've worked with the, the larger deployments, um, aviation companies, retail companies, um, uh, media companies. Um, so I've worked with those executives that were really kind of carrying that same sort of cynicism and that, um, that um, curiosity of there must be a better way. Mm -hmm. And it's those individuals that kind of tapped into the promise that Holacracy was early on. And what, what's been the experience so far? I mean, 10 years is a lot, but... <laughs> well, um, so, you know, exponential growth now. Uh, it started very small with okay. just a few. Um, but there are, you know, many, many hundreds of organizations all over the world, many tens of thousands of people that are working this way, uh, again, all over the world. And that all started out very small in the, um, the early 2000s or the mid-2000s. So 10 years in, Holacracy is in, um, I think you said earlier, 500 to 600 organizations globally? Yep, I think the, the published data is about 500 organizations that can be trackable, and there are probably many other organizations that are just 
do-it-yourself experimenters that aren't really on the radar. Okay. Yeah. And is there uh, technology to support? Like when you do, uh, it's not a reorg, it's an implementation? Yep. Or is that what you would call it? An implementation or an adoption of an alternative approach, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're adopting something new. Mm-hmm. You're adopting the holacracy constitution, the rule set, um, and swapping out your old rule set, um, the management hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So you have to go in and you have to train, because you're dealing with managers and essentially... Tell me about that, because <laughs> right? this is like the anti-management, right? Sort of. And I, I don't like to use the word anti, but it, it's, it's leveling the playing field, right? So you go in an organization that's set up with a whole bunch of managers, yeah, and then you're saying... This, you're, so this what, is not your father's or your grandfather's change management system. <laughs> right, so what do you say? Yeah, this is a big deal. And um, there are many organizations um, out in the world that are pioneering and exploring, exploring different uh, methods for deploying holacracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of approaches to this. But fundamentally, it is um, an act of unlearning. Okay. And unlearning a lot of uh, old behaviors, old beliefs about how to show up and work in a mm-hmm. conventional hierarchy. Um, and the only way you unlearn um, is through practice and be reinforced with positive experiences mm-hmm. uh, that um, substantiate or reinforce the learning. So this is not a cognitive intervention. This mm-hmm. is not a read the book and, oh, I know the practice. This is not even, I've read the book, I've attended all the courses, and I have a, a deep understanding of the rules, but I've never practiced. This is a game of practice that you get better at only through the doing, not through the thinking about. So this starts, um, I was in our workshop we just had, I was talking about everybody starts at zero when you deploy holacracy. Even the most seasoned managers have not played this game before. Even the most seasoned executives have not played this game before. And everybody is learning a new game to play. Mm -hmm. So in that, everybody starts at zero. And the deployment method is to help people get from that to a sustainable state fast. And there have been lots of techniques tried over now 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, some successes, some failures, and some really cool innovations that are going on uh, to help people over that unlearning curve mm-hmm. fast. So it is about surrendering into a system that you trust to express purpose and let go of held beliefs about how things should be done. Wow, that's a powerful premise. It's a lot for both sides. <laughs> of the equation. One of the the things that I I, uh, equate it to is like going in and turning the lights on. Hmm. So with this practice, everything becomes visible. There are no sacred cows. You're not playing politics. Well, you have to learn how to not play politics um, because that is so habituated. But there are no uh, fiefdoms. There are no territories. There are no toes to step on. Um, Your boss is not your boss. Your boss is a member with you, a partner with you, helping to express purpose in the world. And so it's a radically different experience for both the former leaders and the former direct reports. Mm -hmm. So on both sides of that, it's a big, um, big change. It's a transformative change. It's huge relief for the managers that have been carrying heroically the burden Mm -hmm. of decision-making, the buck stops here kind of thing, 
um, or the bottleneck or the constraint. And for the line folks, the folks that are actually doing the work, closest to the work, they finally are able to channel what they see and sense into the organization unencumbered um, mm -hmm. from filters, management, middle management filters. So it's a, a huge shift on both sides. Mm -hmm. And it's scary. Um, you know, uh, managers over decades have been socialized on how to lead and how to manage, and you climb a ladder, and there's progressions that reward that behavior, and that's all changing. Um, the same side, the same on the other side, those that uh, employees that have been grown cynical and afraid to use their voice for good reason um, are really hesitant to step into a space that allows them to do so. So all of these learned behaviors have to be unlearned, and then a confidence has to grow to step in and play differently. Mm -hmm. So what are the limitations? In what regard? Um, well, um, the limitations of holacracy in and of itself. Um, so <clears throat> back to my foundational definition, it's a replacement for management hierarchy. So it's any organization that wants to get work done differently can adopt this and then grow and scale. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't see this as a big company solution or a small company solution, a mm -hmm. for-profit or non-profit solution. It's any organization that wants to find a different way to express its work mm -hmm. can adopt Holacracy. So now where has it evolved into and what are you working on now? Well, um, this is all still happening with Holacracy One mm -hmm. and uh, the partners and providers within Holacracy One's network is global. Um, but as an entrepreneur, um, about two years ago, uh, having a front row seat to all of this work and seeing the really amazing and transformative effects that self-organizing the work had, uh, I was also becoming more and more aware that there were a couple things that we left behind. We did an awesome job of making a distinction, breaking that fusion of um, management hierarchy and culture and people and work mm -hmm. and structure. We broke that apart and got really focused on what an organization is and how to structure an organization and express, to express its work. Um, but we left behind a couple systems that now need to be upgraded too. And so about two years ago, um, I started to um, vocalize that sense that there could be a better way on mm -hmm. our um, legal structures and our people structures and started to see if other people could see that too, if there was any resonance around that and um, was connected deeply with the Holacracy community. Uh, Christiana Sussoyler, who's sitting here to my left, uh, was one of those individuals that deeply resonated with this as well. And... Um, one other individual um, also deeply resonated with this enough to launch a new organization. And that new organization is encode.org. So that's my sixth um, endeavor over the last uh, three decades. You can't stop. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, encode.org's purpose now is to go beyond employment and liberate purposeful work by taking um, the good work that we've done with Holacracy in the world, mm -hmm. um, self-organizing that system, and now using those exact same principles and embed those exact same principles in our legal structure and our people structure. Mm. So changing the way our, our corporations are actually structured at their foundational level. How limited liability companies are structured, our partnerships in the states, uh, and this is a global effort. So all over the world, there are different jurisdictions with different corporate structures. 
and we're working with uh, a variety of structures to embed self-organizing principles, the very ones that we've grown to love in our holacracy practice in the legal system. And then do the very same thing when we think about um, moving beyond employees, mm -hmm. um, changing the way we think of ourselves in relation to our work, mm -hmm. not in an employer-employee relationship, but as an independent agent, mm -hmm. someone that happens to care about that organization's work and wants to hang out with other individuals that also care about that work. Mm -hmm. So we want a collection of independent agents of purpose, you might say. Uh, that care about purposes in the world. And we group those into a collection or a collective, an association of uh, purpose agents um, and upgrade how we think about um, relating with one another, not as employees, but um, as uh, legal members and partners um, engaged in this endeavor to bring purpose into the world. So Holacracy's upgrading the organization. Yep. And then ENCODE adds in upgrading the legal... The legal structures. And upgrading the people. The people structures and people relationships. So it's it's no longer this um, employer-employee. Yeah, we break that notion of needing employees um, mm -hmm. and having employers. So ENCODE is moving the boundary even further out. Um, so You're blowing people's minds right now. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, well, this is a new way of working. But think about it. I mean, for 10 years, uh, and there have been other pioneers before Holacracy One, right? Mm -hmm. So for decades, people have been experimenting with self-organization. Mm -hmm. And now we have a repeatable, portable operating system in Holacracy that allows anybody that wants to to replace the management hierarchy. Okay. Cool. Check. Well, without a management hierarchy, guess what you don't have? Managers. Mm -hmm. You don't have central authority. You don't have executives and supervisors. You don't have people managing people. Mm -hmm. You have people engaged in the work of the organization, um, self-organizing that work. So without managers, without bosses, why do we need employees? So this is kind of the next logical step. We drop the notion of needing managers and a management hierarchy. So it's time to drop the notion of being a second-class citizen, an employee, Mm -hmm. um, not having equal rights to make an investment, either um, of any kind, in a purpose that you care about. And that's where the word liberation comes in. Yeah, liberating purposeful work. Mm -hmm. So it allows everybody to pursue work that aligns with their own personal purpose mm -hmm. and to liberate that, um, that relationship. It's a purpose-to-purpose -purpose relationship, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that word, I mean, has a lot of different meanings to it when you think of liberation. You know, what are you living? Because if you're liberating, we, what are you liberating from? Where are you yeah. liberating to? Is it external liberation? Well, it's a pretty, is it internal liberation? You of know? course. It's a pretty easy answer, though, in the context of a corporate structure mm -hmm. or an employer-employee's uh, context. You're being liberated from labor laws, employment laws, and um, authority outside of your control. So there are a lot of now antique laws that really no longer apply or are no longer as relevant in the new world of work. Mm -hmm. And we need to rethink that completely. This is liberating the worker uh, to break the bonds of being an employee constrained by laws um, that don't necessarily work for them any longer. Laws that were intended to protect them mm -hmm. from um, authority that was outside of their control. Mm -hmm. But we're changing that game. 
we're changing it such that everyone has authority and control and voice and the ability to integrate their perspectives in an incomplete systemic way, end to end. So we have no victim class and we have no privilege class. Mm -hmm. We only have individuals who are working together to express purpose. So we need to drop those distinctions that are no longer useful. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that's major, what you're talking. That's transformation. That's a totally different paradigm than the, where the world is working right yeah, now. Yeah, we're definitely talking about a point in time in the future. Uh-huh. But that's exactly how it felt roll the clock 10 years ago. Right, it's when, accelerating, right? Yeah, well, 10 years ago, um, you know, Brian Robertson and myself were about the only ones talking to existing managers and CEOs about replacing the management hierarchy. And I was like, you're blowing my mind. That's uh-huh. never gonna work. How can you replace the management hierarchy? Uh-huh. What, what are we gonna do? What are people gonna do? How do we coordinate? What about, you know, it's like, yes. So we're right, roll the clock back 10 years. Yep. We're now in 2007, mm-hmm. where Holacracy won and Holacracy was. So we're now laying the foundation for what's next. This is simply the next logical step. So we're experimenting and doing some pioneering work with attorneys who are really interested in this area of law mm-hmm. and uh, organizations that are willing to pioneer new constructs mm-hmm. all over the world and essentially creating a new um, meta layer of uh, law uh, to replace the need for employees. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you were to start an, uh, you said an LLC. So what would look different now than a current LLC? I've started a couple of LLCs, but it, for me it's like, oh, I'm going to start a company, and LLC seems like the simplest thing to do. Yeah, of course. And get online, and just fill out the form, and then, okay, I have a company. Yeah, that's all you need. Check box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, check that box and yeah. go, right? Yeah. File with the Secretary of State somewhere, and yeah. you're off and running. Get your taxpayer identification. There it button. is. Yeah. yeah. Open your bank account, and you're off. Yeah. But in that document, there is really important governance and you're ignoring it, uh, about how partners um, interact with one another, where the authority lies to dissolve the company or share profits or um, any number of a myriad of other things. So um, our objective is on a global scale to select flexible existing legal structures that allow us to make the fundamental changes we need to enact a for-purpose structure. So I know that's a mouthful, but we've selected um, in the states, the limited liability company structure gives us enough flexibility to basically gut them Mm -hmm. um, and remove the unwanted things. And the unwanted things are um, officers, directors, boards, shareholders that all have authority that's being granted to them through centuries-old governance processes Mm -hmm. and decision-making processes. So we completely gut them, and we replace them with 21st century decision-making, integrating perspectives, Mm -hmm. not wielding power personally. We also change, um, now that everyone is a legal member, Mm -hmm. we open up the investments that they can hold. Mm -hmm. So everyone becomes an investor. It's changing the notion and the definition of even what an owner is. Mm. Sounds really off to my ears to think about a self-organized entity that is all about purpose being owned by some other person. That just sounds 
It's completely off. Mm-hmm. As bad as owning another person. Mm-hmm. And we've abolished that for the most part, or at least trying to in all parts of the world. So um, this makes everyone an investor and no one an owner. Everyone can invest for purpose. And some investors are just out of school and their investment is time, energy, and talent for a paycheck Mm -hmm. that goes into their bank account so they can pay their mortgage and Mm -hmm. put their kids to school. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And for some investors, it's a midterm investment that they're making a little bit more, a little bit less, Mm -hmm. and leaving a little bit more in the organization and taking a deferred stake. Okay. And for others, it's more the classic capital interest that they're taking a long-term position on the overall growth of the organization and the potential appreciation of value that that organization might have. That's really interesting. So everyone becomes an investor uh, and no one owns it. No owners. No owners. No employees. No employees. Only investors. No board. No officers. And the entity itself is the one that Mm self-organizes. So there's no first mover in terms of a person. Uh, that translates to no one person can rescind the decision to be self-organized. Mm-hmm. It's the legal entity itself that has decided to self-organize. So there's no power holder that can trump the decision or restate or rescind the decision. This is a big Thing. That's huge. And you've done that with ENCODE? That's how ENCODE is structured? Yep, yep. ENCODE and actually Holacracy One okay. um, did a lot of the early work um, because when Brian and I were working um, in the early years, we also did not want employees and we were looking for different options. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those um, principles are already embedded in its legal structure. Mm-hmm. But we took that and extended it. Um, and added a few things to make it even easier for um, entities all over the world to change their structures too. That's where it scales. Yep. And other people have the opportunity to take on a similar structure. Yep. So if you're practice. Over, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if you're in Europe, um, in the Netherlands, we have a legal structure that embeds these principles and is valid in the Netherlands. Uh, we have the same in Austria, that a legal structure that's valid in Austria also embeds many of these principles. Mm-hmm. And we're working with other jurisdictions, other countries uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So if somebody wanted to start an LLC in the U.S. right now, could they access this document? Or did, they, did they purchase it through ENCODE? Is, how do they start this? Yeah, so um, the, there's a couple answers there. Uh, ENCODE.org is um, making these templates available. So part of our work in the world is to liberate purposeful work, mm-hmm. right? So we want um, more of these four-purpose enterprises mm-hmm. in, the, in the world. So we want to do everything to remove any friction or obstacles of individuals wanting to spin up companies this way. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, two LLC um, forms uh, valid in the state of Colorado and the state of Nevada available in the states. Mm-hmm. So you can select either one of those and uh, launch your company. That's great. Um, which is great, um, but you're launching it, you're, you're buying the rule book for a game you haven't played. Right. So um, it is uh, advisable to get some uh, advice and counsel, uh, either from an attorney who's familiar with these structures mm-hmm. or from other individuals that are practicing. 
to make sure you're getting good coaching along the way. Mm-hmm. And how to use these new tools, these new levers, mm-hmm. um, these new instruments to run and structure and grow and scale your enterprise. So um, the templates, we intend to make them available all over the world um, and then um, link people together to help uh, coach and advise on how to run, grow, and scale these kind of enterprises. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the financial side of it? Um, You mentioned blockchain technology, and think of me as knowing nothing. (laughs) <laughs> about blockchain technology, but it's fascinating to me, and I'm, I'm curious to know more and and how that works with the whole idea of self-organizing and decentralizing the financial structure. Yeah, so uh, I'm not getting too into the tech details, um, but the the blockchain um, is known as a decentralized public ledger. And that just simply means that uh, all records uh, are maintained across the entire system in a peer-to-peer kind of uh, construct. Mm -hmm. There's no central authority. So the blockchain, through its technology and its architecture, keeps a record of all transactions is one way to think about it. Okay. So it's a public ledger of transactions. Um, and they would claim immutable um, that you can't break it. High degree of security. Okay. So you can trust. It's a trusted system that a transaction is unique and can be verified as such. Mm-hmm. You need that to have um, the types of things that are stored on the blockchain, mm-hmm. like contracts or agreements or currencies. Mm-hmm. So the blockchain is the underpinning upon which some of the cryptocurrencies that are getting a lot of attention today, uh, right upon. So the blockchain is simply a ledger. Okay. It's a place to store transactions, if you will, mm-hmm. or record of transaction, if you will. Um, that's an event occurred, mm-hmm. and that ledger is decentralized. What's so, the value? So the value. So um, business is complex. All the things that I talked about, get encoded, this mm-hmm. is where encode.org kind of gets the its name, okay. is encoding all of these agreements. So it's one thing to talk about this over a couple microphones and a table about mm-hmm. how this might work. It's quite another thing to get the actual legal agreements with the, um, the right structures in place that would be legitimate in local jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So we want those agreements to live in software. Okay and make them smart, essentially, mm-hmm. um, so that it's easy for folks to enter into these relationships through clear, smart agreements, where you don't have to be an attorney to understand all the machinations mm-hmm. that are operating um, beneath it, and yet they are still valid. So we want um, ENCODE envisions uh, being able to use 21st century ledgers to store agreements that we're in, entering into to make this for-purpose enterprise structure a reality. Mm-hmm. And then and there are a lot of players in this field. It Are there advantages to, well, it's sort of, if I'm, if I'm getting this, it allows there to be a safe place for there to be transactions on a global scale. So the location of where you are is irrelevant. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking of like good. underdeveloped countries and the opportunity for, you know, those people to use a technology like this, is is there a value there for them that's not realized right now? Yeah, it's um, just like the internet 
um, has become or is nearly ubiquitous everywhere, access for all. Mm -hmm. But the internet is, um, I think Kevin Kelly uh, writes this in one of his recent books, um, the internet is the, the largest copy machine on the planet. It just makes copies after copies after copies, and it's everywhere, right? And you can't trust, you know, if this is a copy, uh -huh. is this a trusted source or a not trusted source? It's not so good at that. Uh -huh. It's great at making all the information of the planet available everywhere, right? right? Mm -hmm. But not so good at knowing if a particular piece of information is unique and can be trusted. That's helpful. And yeah. so the blockchain technology addresses that problem. Mm -hmm. It's a trusted ledger mm -hmm. so that you know that a certain event between two parties or multiple parties happened and it can't be corrupted by any one node in the system. Mm -hmm. That it's, there's cross checks, if you will, across the entirety of the system mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that it is a trusted source for the transactions that you care about. And these are certainly transactions that we care about because they structure the legal relationship we have with our business entities, and also structure our financial investments. Um, it's how we hold our financial stake in mm -hmm. these entities. So are you using blockchain technology right now for the financial transactions we, for ENCODE? We are not. So we are developing um, the foundational agreements first. Mm -hmm. So we need those to be legit yep. and affordable. Um, effective in all the jurisdictions mm -hmm. and then we'll take those um, where we have an architecture for a platform that we're developing to tie these pieces together so in terms of encode.org's um, business model and growth it was focusing on the, the basics first what yep. are the funda foundational fundamental agreements mm -hmm. that encode all of these relationships and encode these assets these currencies if you will mm -hmm. uh, for investment stakes and once we have those, then we translate those into software, and then that software rides on the ledger. So how many people do you have uh, ten. In, on the team or in the organization? Yep. So <laughs> what is it? Yeah, the enterprise. <laughs> so we have, um, we have had as many as 12 individuals. We're now uh, at 10 mm -hmm. um, legal members, and we're just about ready to bring on four additional ones. So, okay. And those... Um, are about equal across um, both sides of the Atlantic. So we have okay. about five um, member partners in Europe and the same in the States. Okay. And so what are you working on right now, finishing the agreement piece of it? Or? Yeah, we're finding early movers mm -hmm. in various jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned a few, the Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, UK, um, and Canada, uh, Germany. So we're looking for early movers in those yeah. uh, jurisdictions and looking for good attorneys uh, familiar with those uh, jurisdictional business entities mm -hmm. that are also interested in this new world of law mm -hmm. and then working with those collectively to create the new agreements. Okay. So that's been where our focus has been for the last uh, 12, 18 months. Uh, and we now have, as I mentioned, um, legitimate um, recognized agreements in four of those jurisdictions. Did you say the U.S.? U.S., we have two. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, and the other part is just getting the word out. So right. So it's just letting people know there is, there is indeed another way. 
there's another way to structure your work, structure your legal relationships, structure your capital assets. Mm-hmm. There's another way to spin up or start up um, an entrepreneurial initiative. All you startups out there, there's yeah. another way. Yeah, <laughs> to actually bootstrap your startup yeah. without all the unwanted things. Mm-hmm. So founders and founder fusion that sometimes take years to unwind from or sometimes uh, cause a company to tank mm-hmm. because of partnership disputes. So there, there are new pathways to do all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that reminded me to ask you about dynamic equity because that's a whole other concept too because I've been involved in some ventures where you know, you, you start them and, and you've got the, the pieces of the pie identified in the beginning and then those don't change. Yeah, well, that's um, that's old school, right? Yeah. Predict and control. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not very dynamic. That's not very responsive. That's not very agile, mm-hmm. as they would say. Uh, so this is one of the. These are some of the principles, of course, embedded in self-organizing systems. They're mm-hmm. they're more agile, more iterative, less predictive. So we wanted to take that and find a way to bake that principle into the legal structure. Mm-hmm. And we ran across the work of Mike Moyer, um, author of Slicing Pie, which is awesome work. So as I said, I've started six entities over the last you know, 30 years, mm-hmm. and all but this one, Encode.org, uh, even Holacracy One, when Brian and I launched that, we were confronted with the same question that confronts all business partners. Mm-hmm. What's the equity split? Uh, is this a 2020 thing, 2020-2020 times five? Is this a 50-50 thing, 80-20 thing? What are we doing? Yeah. And of course, no one really knows if they're honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of methods and a lot of techniques to value th- and come up with an answer, but it's all predictive on the future. Mm-hmm. So um, Mike, to his credit, um, developed a system called Slicing Pie that takes a dynamic approach to track the actual inputs needed to bring a company from early phase um, to um, at some point cash flow break even, first round of investment, um, MVP, minimal viable product, whatever the marker is. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of bootstrapping um, an entity into life without having to predict and control the capitalization structure up front. Mm -hmm. So we took those principles and instead of having it just an add-on kind of theory, yeah. um, we took the principles and baked it into the legal structure. Mm-hmm. So we actually have an investment vehicle, uh, a dynamic equity unit. Um, there are four types or classes of stock in this kind of enterprise. There's okay. a capital interest, a profit interest, a deferred interest, and this one uh, that we're talking about, a dynamic allocation interest. Okay. And so we made it just, we wove it into the fabric of how the legal entity is designed and structured, not as an add-on thing. Mm-hmm. What this does, it allows you to issue dynamic allocation units mm-hmm. to those that are contributing to the early stage and development of a startup. So you can account for all the things that you might need to account for. Time, money, energy, intellectual property, real assets, goodwill, whatever. Uh, they can be tracked and indexed to an actual membership unit within the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And then at some point in the future, when the time is right, we could talk more about what that looks like, uh, you call that period over and essentially, uh, to use Mike's metaphor, slice the pie. Okay. So everybody's contributed uh, a bit. Um, At some point in time, that pie is sliced and the enterprise has its first uh, cap table Hmm. with those that actually contributed to its growth. Do you, that's amazing. 
that's a totally different paradigm shift too. Yeah, so we just uh, finished that process. So this was the first entity that I launched without being a founder and without having co-founders, right? So just a founding member with no special privileges that bootstrapped an entity that has no shareholders that can vote. Um, I started it with not knowing what my capitalization structure would be or my ownership structure up front. I delayed that decision until some future date. And so over the last 18 months, the collective of us, 12, have been playing this dynamic equity game as we've been growing and uh, scaling uh, Encode.org. And we've accumulated a big chunk of these allocation units. And we are about ready to slice our own pie. So come the end of this month, we're going to take our big pool of allocation units and we're going to call that game or phase one over and get ready to move to phase two. And when we do, we will slice the pie and everyone will have their initial capital structure of the company. Uh, so we didn't have to predict it up front and uh, we could allow it to evolve dynamically. People can come and go in that process. Mm -hmm. And there is no ill will, no animosity, um, at least much less um, potential for any confusion or mistrust on how we decided to divide up mm -hmm. the, the capital structure. How was that for you, you know, essentially starting an organization and leaving that open? Yeah. Because when you have an idea, you, you kind of want to, you know, hang on to. You get so protective of your little idea, right? <clears throat> and so having started this and going, you know what, this is, I'm going to let the process sort of dictate what my value is. Yeah, well, I was um, well prepared for this. Mm -hmm. um, only, I only can say that is because I had to do the very same thing this very active surrender around control mm -hmm. with Holacracy One. Okay. Even though Holacracy One, Brian and I still had to do the partnership dance and the capital dance with other components, not just he and I, uh, because we didn't have a better way. Mm -hmm. We were still using a conventional way to structure the capital structure of the, the, the entity. But what we did have to surrender to was control. Mm -hmm. So we used Holacracy. That was the very first startup that used a self-organizing operating system to launch a company. So we used Holacracy from day one mm -hmm. at Holacracy One. I remember our first governance meeting, which marks the birth of Holacracy One, March of 2007. So that is an act of surrender. Mm -hmm. So that actually primed me, uh, prepared me uh, for the next act of surrender, which is um, allowing everybody that resonates with the purpose of ENCODE to come together and contribute to the degree and capacity they can mm -hmm. to help build this thing. And I care enough about this purpose that I'm confident that we'll track the actual inputs that help grow the entity and it will ac accurately reflect the contributions in the end. And so I was prepared to step into that space along with the other two founding members and now the other 12 members. Um, and when all is said and done, we're 18 months in, I look back in fact, we just had a review with all of the members. Um, so we very, everything's public and visible. So we see how this table, this pie is changing over time. And I asked the question, I said, here it is, black and white. Here are the actual numbers, here are the actual inputs, here's the percent of class that you're going to get at the end of this equity split uh, period. How do you feel? Does it feel comfortable? Does it feel fair? And to a person, 
it was like, yep, this is about, this feels about right. This feels like what it should be. And so we've uh, shortcutted, short-circuited all the potential partner disputes. Mm -hmm. um, we have a fair and ratable way of capitalizing ENCODE.org um, 18 months after it was formed. And, and everybody was on board with it. Yeah, so, um, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and if they weren't, um, they didn't have to wait until that day mm -hmm. because it's visible and transparent all the way through. Mm -hmm. Tension processing uh, rules apply. In other words, if you see something that you feel is out of balance or moving us away from a purpose that we all care about, mm -hmm. do something about it. Act. Process it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so who do you feel like are the most uh, ripe early movers for this new way of working. Yeah, so um, certainly those organizations that have been practicing holacracy mm -hmm. uh, straight up. Um, so that may be ready to upgrade their legal structures, uh, change the notion of having employees and moving to all legal partners. Um, there's huge benefit in taking that step and they're already well practiced mm -hmm. in um, the self-organizing uh, process that is holacracy. So there's that. Um, and then entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I've spoken with many of them. I was at the Responsive.org conference in Berkeley last fall and met with many entrepreneurs across the, the world that are really dissatisfied mm -hmm. with the options available to structure and capitalize early stage companies. Mm -hmm. And so entrepreneurs looking for better ways to launch a for-purpose initiative um, are also good candidates. Would anybody not be a good candidate? Um, I think those that are still playing around with or entertaining the whole notion of self-organization, um, where power and control still isn't quite ready to be surrendered mm -hmm. into a systemic approach, uh, probably aren't ready to do all of it all at once. <laughs> I think it takes, um, it's the, the same answer that I have when people ask me, uh, what organizations are well suited for holacracy? Basically, it's any organization that is willing to give up the management hierarchy. To express work in the world. Surrender. So you have to be ready for that. Who's ready to surrender. surrender? Yes. Yeah, you have to die a little bit to the notion that you can control everything mm -hmm. and predict everything. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you find that it takes somebody who's already had an experience where they've had to die a little bit themselves? Honestly, or? I think so. I yeah. think it's the, the seasoned executives. It's the seasoned entrepreneurs. And that's not exclusive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole new generation coming up mm -hmm. that are just screaming for better ways, uh, more purpose-aligned, purpose-driven mm -hmm. ways. So it's not exclusive to that. But yeah, generally, it's those that have had the hard knocks that recognize the limits of the current system mm -hmm. and are ready to try uh, a new, different way mm -hmm. of getting stuff done. So what's your hope? Yeah, well, I mentioned this. Actually, it's quite personal for me. I think this is generational work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been at this a long time, and many others. Uh, we've lived in corporate structures that have kind of wounded us, honestly. Um, there's been disillusionment. Um, there's been a, a lack of creativity that has been squelched within organizations, uh, a sense of dysfunction, almost pathology, that has kind of leaked into our zeitgeist around corporate work in general. And so my hope is that we do this work so that the next generations don't have to suffer that. Um, it's really for the, the children. <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I, I really mean that. I, I, I have uh, nieces and nephews that are just entering the workforce right out of school. And it really does disturb me that they're going to have to go into their first jobs and learn all the corporate politics and learn what it is to navigate uh, the world of corporate hierarchies and management structures when the world would be so much better served by focusing all that energy to express really cool work in the world. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that um, that comes fast, that we can um, get a place where everybody is aligning their purposes for purposeful work and are as unencumbered as possible from expressing that work in the world. Mm -hmm. That's great. Do you see part of the work being... um of ENCODE being sort of guides or teachers, you know, and sort of guiding organizations or even people. I mean, you think about, you know, you're adding the purpose agent to that, and that, that's a very, you know, individual piece of it too. Yeah, I think of it more as modeling as opposed mm-hmm. to guiding. Um, there's a little pithy phrase. There's a lot of pithy phrases in holacracy practice. One of them is safe enough to try. Mm-hmm. And so what I think Encode.org is doing is making this safe to try. Um, stepping into the space along with many others and showing you yeah, this can work. Mm-hmm. This honors fundamentals. This is doable. Um, this is safe enough to try. And where we really want that to, to show up is inspiring individuals to be those agents of purpose. Mm-hmm. To be really picky where they spend their time, energy, and talent. And for what, with who, right? So we want to model that that matters. Those choices are meaningful choices. And you have options on where you spend your time, energy, and talent, and who you hang out with. And we want to model how to do that um, so that others can do that too. In one way, this is a very selfish move. This is how I want to work and how I know lots of other folks want to work. So we want to do the work needed to make this accessible and um, easy for folks to follow. That's what I want for my kids. Yeah, yes. I want them to to grow into a society where they're able to become their full selves and to align with, you know, their purposes and and do, you know, become these creative sort of uh, change agents. And, and have a safe place where they can step into that. Yeah, I think we want our structures that um, encourage that, uh, that don't stand in the way of that. Mm-hmm. That the, the structures themselves are designed to support that work. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a better way of thinking of it. And don't get in the way of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, they feel like they're in the way. They feel like they're outdated. They've reached their expiration date. They're no longer as useful as they once were. And they are actually impeding purposeful work in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think there's anything that you didn't touch on or that we didn't talk about? Um, no, that was a <laughs> pretty wide-sweeping yeah. uh, spread there, for sure. Um, if people are interested, uh, encode.org, E-N-C-O-D-E.org, yep. is the place to find out more information about ENCODE. and Yep, you can show up there, uh, take a look at how we're uh, structuring these uh, different agreements, um, where our workshops are uh, to mm-hmm. learn more. Uh, we have a blog post on Medium, so we're publishing white papers and case studies 
and um, testimonials from people that are working and living this way. What is it like? Mm -hmm. So you can go uh, check that out. Uh, sign up for our newsletter just to stay uh, up to date on all the things that are happening. And yeah, that's the best place to, to connect. And if somebody wants to connect with you, what's uh, I, the best way to do that? Yep, again, on the ENCODE site, um, there's a contact us and you can put in any request and that gets um, routed to the right person, the right role in mm -hmm. the organization to take the right next action. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sitting. I really feel honored that you took the time to, to sit with me. and. My pleasure. And Thank you for the invitation. This mm -hmm. was really cool. It was fun spending the last uh, chunk of time just chatting with you. Yeah, and I really feel like for me the resonance is this this integration too of like the whole person and bringing in sort of a spiritual component to to business and and there's I think there's some healing you know in what you're talking about that um, I think there's an appetite for I, I know that I. I crave that and, and feeling like there's a there's a better way to do things and I'm really impressed by the amount of um, depth and practicality that ENCODE is bringing forth into the world so it, it gets me fired up yeah well thank you for that that's super meaningful um, and it means that we're we're resonating we're on the right track of mm -hmm. something something's needed yeah let's figure this out <laughs> thanks again yeah thank you